0: We live in a constantly changing world where the speed of information is changing how we think and act and connect with one another. When people in a society lose faith in their institutions, in God, and in each other, the nation collapses. We need help rebuilding trust and tying it all together. Welcome to All That To Say, a podcast exploring the interrelatedness of all things in long form conversation. Founder of Seco Designs, Liz Bohannon, joins the podcast to talk the difference between luck and puck, and what she learned in the launch of a socially conscious lifestyle brand.
1: Welcome to All That To Say. I am so pumped to have my guest today. Her name is Liz Bohannon, and Liz, I mean, is a... I'll call it a renaissance woman. This is an entrepreneur. This is a person who builds businesses. This is a person who writes books, a person who hosts podcasts. Oh, she's a wife and mom on the side, no, probably up front and center. She is a world changer, and she has carved time out of her life to be with us. Liz, thanks so much.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Jim. I'm really excited to be here.
1: I have to tell you that I'm the father of four sons. My youngest son is a vociferous uh, reader and, you know— entrepreneur of his own kind. He's a pastor anyway. Mm -hmm. So I was uh, visiting him. He lives in Michigan. And uh, lo and behold, what would be there but, I don't know if this book, there's this book called Beginner's Pluck, Build Your Life of Purpose and Impact Now. The author is Liz Forkin Bohannon. And I said, Nathaniel, for that is his name, Nathaniel. You won't believe this, but I've got this woman scheduled for our podcast. His jaw dropped open. He said, no way, no way. You're not be talking to her really live. I said, yep. I'm just telling you, Liz, you're a thing. And we're so glad to (laughs) have you. Well,
2: Nathaniel, thank you for reading. Thank you for uh, pumping us up for this conversation here today. I love that. And anytime, you know, I'm a parent too. I've got three boys, so you're one ahead of me. But I think. Whew, poor boys. <laughs> <laughs> well. um, but that being said, anytime you know us parents can do one another a solid and make the other parent look cool, I feel well, I'm I'm I here mean, for that. So I will call I will call you in at some point when my okay. boys are a so, little older. So uh, all
1: right, yeah, I've got a couple books. I'll send them your way see what they'll do with it. <laughs> hey, you know the book is is a it's a narrative of uh, how you developed and landed uh, a business while it also just so beautifully expresses life itself. I just have to tell you, Liz, as I've been reading it, it, it is really so engaging. I mean, I don't know you in person, but you jumped off the page. The, the mm. writing style, the conversational style, the, the frankness, the kind of fun candor that also is uh, a clothing for deep embedded truth. It's really mm. a great read. So I just oh, want to thank say you. thank you. That's that's not from Nathaniel, and that's from his dad. I'm just telling you, <laughs> it's got its own its own vibe. Uh, you you have made so much impact, and you know I'm I'm your father. <laughs> you know in a relatively short time. Wow how how did you. Understand growing up that you know I'm going to change the world. That's what I'm going to do. Now I have to say in the intro to your book, you describe mm-hmm. this scene called "Naked and Afraid," which is kind of like a little, <laughs> a little, um, how uh, should we say, a meme of you standing in a shower as a twenty-something, and the water goes off. You've got a meeting to go to. You don't have a job. You don't have income. Your world just seems to be jello, and and you're and you're trying to navigate. What do I do with myself? But do you have a moment in your life where you thought, ah? this, uh, I know, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm not Mm. just going to sit back and let the world walk by. I want to be in it. Or did Mm. that just something grow naturally and evolve in your journey?
2: You know, that's such a good question. And I don't think I have, you know, my, my biggest aha moment, probably really the only one, because every other thing that I can think of was really just a building, like an evolution, a pivot, a quarter turn, if you will. Um, But I would say the moment for me really came... So it's after university. I've graduated. It's the height of the recession. I got a job because I had to. I didn't like the job, but it was like, I got to pay bills. So like the classic thing. I feel like I went through what so many college students in America go through, which is like you're in college and you're like Quote unquote passionate about stuff because there's space for that and there's a structure for it for ideas and for conversation and for what is happening in the world. And then we have this moment where it's like we graduate, and we got to start paying bills, we go get a job. You know, I, had, of course, had visions that I was going to go, you know, I was going to get hired by the New York Times to go be an international correspondent to write and report about issues facing women and girls across the globe. Well, Jim, turns out the New York Times is not very interested in hiring you to be an international journalist when you've like never left the United States of America before. <laughs> you know, it's like so I got a job that I was it was like fine. But I had this moment only, you know, a few months out of college where I had spent the last four years in university saying I was really passionate about something. And for me, that was women and girls living in extreme poverty in conflict and post-conflict zones. That was my thing. It's what lit me up. That's what kept me up at night. That's what got me fired up. I wrote papers about it. I had a ton of academic knowledge on it. I could talk about it. And then I have this moment where I'm in my first job. I'm actually doing some research for a client. And I realize that I say I'm passionate about this thing, that I know a ton about it. But the reality is I didn't have a single friend who was a woman or girl who had that kind of lived experience that supposedly I was so passionate about. Mm -hmm. And this was a this was one of those moments in life where like I immediately just kind of started crying. I'm sitting at my desk, you know, my little cubicle, my first job. And I realized that there's this delta between what I say I care about and my quote-unquote passion and then just like my actual day-to-day life. My community, my friends, my job, my pocketbook, my calendar, how I spend my time, my money, my emotional resources, none of it was connected to this thing that I said I cared about. So for me, there was a real... I think I have since learned uh, a lot about myself that integrity is a wildly high value that I hold. And so I I honestly feel like it felt like an integrity issue. that was like, oh, you can really go run your mouth about this issue. But like the reality is your life doesn't reflect that in a meaningful way at all. You don't even have a single friend. There's not a single meaningful relationship in your life that is a woman or girl who grew up with this type of lived experience. And it was almost, Jim, like I saw, it sounds dramatic. I kind of feel like I saw my life flash before my eyes. And I was like, if you you don't do something now to change that reality, you will, over the course of the next several decades, kind of unknowingly step onto the treadmill, right? Of just like, get a job, make money, spend more money get married, have kids. My world will become, you know, the four or five people in my like immediate nucleus, like then taking care of them and then whatever my job is and getting the next promotion. It's like, I could just kind of see all of it. And, and I could almost like see myself being like, Oh, sweet college Liz. She was so passionate and idealistic, like, Oh, bless her heart. But then, you know, then real life came in real life you know is real life and it's almost like we lose our sense of autonomy that it's like we have this idea that it's like well this is real life and you got to do it and we give up so much of our autonomy and i think just like right in that moment i was like stop stop abort the mission like do not get on to that don't step onto that treadmill and like you have an opportunity right now i had no idea how i was going what it was going to evolve into what would come of it. All I knew is that it was just this moment of like, break the cycle. And for me, what breaking the cycle meant, not stepping onto that treadmill meant go make a friend. Literally, you don't have to have a plan. You don't have to have a vision. You don't have to have some sort of strategic, you don't have to have some sort of, you know, like revelation, literally my goal in life became just like, go have, go make a single friend and have one meaningful relationship in your life that actually aligns with and is connected to this thing that you say you care about, that's it. So in that moment, I put in my two weeks, my first job. I quit, bought a one-way plane ticket to Uganda and was like, I have no idea what the future holds, but my goal here is just like, go make a friend. Close that gap.
1: Right there, Liz, you identified... (laughs) Um, something that is obvious reading your book and looking at your life that is woven into the deepest fiber of your being, whatever else you are or not, you're craving the adventure. I mean, you were willing Mm -mm. to just like throw it out and I don't have a plan exactly, but I know that I'm just not going to ride the train without getting off and experiencing. Exploring and tasting. I mean, you, what you just described. I got on a plane and went to Uganda with a one-way ticket. Why Uganda? I mean, of all places, why that one? Why not Mozambique or Pakistan?
2: So when I was in university, I had taken a couple. I took a piece in um, a piece in conflict re- reconciliation class, and I focused my research in that class on the conflict in northern Uganda. So at the time that I moved to Uganda, they were on like the tail end of basically a twenty year civil conflict, and so I knew. I mean, was I an expert? No, it was one semester of a college course. But I had spent a good amount of time following rabbit trails, trying to learn about the conflict. And one of the, one of the aftermaths of this specific conflict was that you kind of had this entire generation of kids who had grown up in IDP camps, So internally displaced persons camp. So it's like when you're, you know, in an internally displaced, meaning they weren't refugees from another Mm -hmm. country, they were Mm -hmm. refugees within their own country. And in Ugandan culture, like many African cultures, your tribe, your connection to your family is so paramount. Um, And so for this whole generation of really internal refugees, they were disconnected from their families, from their tribes, from um, stability, and of course has a profound impact on everyone, but really as war, as poverty, as disease tends to affect women and girls um, in ways that are the most devastating um, and specifically in this conflict in Uganda, what ended up happening is the Lord's resistance army, which was kind of this rebel army force would capture. It's so, so devastating. They would capture young boys from villages and kind of bring them into the army and, and make them into, into rebel child soldiers. And they would capture young women and make them into the wives. I hate to say the word wives. That's what they call it. Let's the be very clear, it's sex there, yeah. Yes. um, For for men in the army. And so just profound devastation, grief, loss, trauma, and they were really just kind of in this post-conflict era. And so I was like, okay, I mean, I I knew more about that conflict um, and the effects of that conflict on women and girls than I did uh, about a lot of the other conflicts that are, you know, happening all over the world. There's a lot to choose from. And That was really it. I had one friend that had moved to Uganda after college. We weren't even very good friends, Jim. But I went to her going away party, probably because I I love parties, mainly because I love cheese. And I was like, maybe there'll be cheese there. Who knows? So I'm going to go to the party. I'm a poor college student. So I go to the going away party. And she kind of throws it out there to like 100 people. She's like, you know, if anybody ever wants to come visit Uganda... We were not really friends. And I called her up after I bought my plane ticket. And I was like, hey, remember when you said, like, if anybody <laughs> wants to come visit you, I'm going to be there in two weeks, like want to hang out. And that was it. That was that was the only, I had an acquaintance there. And then I had some knowledge of the conflict and the effect that that conflict had on women and girls. And so it seemed like a great place to go learn and to go make a friend.
1: I mean, I'm a guy who grew up uh, trying to play by the rules and color in the lines. Uh, I actually have grown up to a place where that sounds really amazing to me. Like, man, I wanna do that. But when I was just out of college, that was not me at all. So as I'm hearing you tell that story, I'm thinking there's so much daring, so much courage, so much, I mean, honestly, a willingness to take a risk. Mm
2: -hmm. And you
1: did, and you landed in Uganda and and you, you did, develop relationships you did see Mm -hmm. the world that you had only read about and Mm -hmm. out of that you got a chicken farm going or (laughs) you know you're trying to problem solve how does that go
2: yeah Uh, you know one of the things that has become a core tenant of kind of how I think about how we build and what we build in this life whether it's our family whether it is uh, an organization, a company, a culture, whatever it is, I'm pretty obsessed with starting with problems as opposed to starting with solutions. Mm -hmm. And so when I showed up in Uganda, I wasn't there to be like, I have a solution to offer. Like, what the heck? I, you know, and I talk about this in the book of just like, I had squat to offer. And let's just be very clear. Anybody who's showing up anywhere in the world for the first time, you don't really have much to offer and let's just be very honest about this like you're not going to save you're not going to help you're not going to impart your wisdom or knowledge i don't think especially not as a 22 year old that had you know like a i had my journalism degree that was it um n- no real meaningful like lived skill set whatever it is but even if i did here's the thing And this is where I feel like we can kind of get into danger. You're like, oh, well, I'm an expert in this. So I'm going to show up in this completely new culture, completely new context and offer what it is that I have. And I just deeply believe that um, one, that's not how God created us to live. Actually, what that does subtly, but um, in a way that I think creates profound impact is the moment you enter into a story and you define yourself as the teacher, as the giver, as the expert, what you are actually doing is also naming the people that you are um, interacting with as the student, as the beneficiary, as the receiver, The dependent. And as the dependent. And I just think that that the way that God designed us to be with one another and in community um, is not that. Like there are, we, you know, we are each and every one of us, I think, created in the image of God to be both givers and receivers in every every single interaction that we are in. Um, And so I'm very wary of ever defining myself in a situation of like, well, I'm the mentor and you're the mentee. I'm the teacher and you're the student. I'm the giver and you're the beneficiary because I think it's deeply dehumanizing. It's dehumanizing definitely to the person that you're saying you're here to give or excuse me, you're here to receive and to be grateful and to listen to me and to benefit from my presence. Very dehumanizing. Um, It's also dehumanizing actually to the person who's naming themselves as the teacher, as the expert, as the giver, because that puts us in this one one-dimensional like role. And I just believe that God created us to live in true community where we each show up deeply believing that I have something to give and offer and I have something to learn and that relationships and community are always an exchange of those things. And so one, I think it's not how we're created to live. And I think it's dehumanizing. Two, I actually think it's deeply ineffective. I think when you come into any scenario and I'm not talking about you show up in a foreign country like I did, that might be your story, but you show up to a board meeting, to a brainstorming meeting, to a, you know a dinner with your kids, whatever it is, when we come into situations believing that we have a solution, our prerogative becomes convincing other people of our solution. Um, and what that does is it keeps us from being really curious. It keeps us from asking really good questions. It keeps us from hearing information that might challenge this precious solution that we've already determined. Um, you can't really be unbiased. You know, I, there's a whole chapter in the book that talks about kind of my alter ego as an investigative journalist. And the reason that I love that alter ego is because if I can click that on all of a sudden, the way that I exist in the world isn't to convince people to believe what I believe or to adopt my solution. My goal is to just get as much information and understand the problem as clearly as possible. And so for when I was in Uganda, that was it. I was on the problem-finding mission, not a solution-implementing mission. And so I ended up meeting an incredible group of young women who were in between high school and university who had tested into college but couldn't afford to go. And all of a sudden, it was like, that's it. That's, that is my very, very interesting problem that I think I could spend the rest of my life trying to solve. Is like what do we do? Provide, How do we bridge the gap?
1: Providing a way for, for them to pursue that education.
2: Yes, to yeah. pursue education, yeah. but not just education, pursue right. education, which leads to self, you know, the opportunities uh, the that knowledge, can which leads to a sense of economy and economic opportunity, and they get to be co-creators. Um, and so yes, that was the very important problem. How I solved that problem, I was like, I don't really care. So I started a charity and then I shut it down because I was learning a lot about the impact, kind of going back to that giver-receiver dynamic. And I'll be very clear. I think there's a lot of nonprofits and charities that operate in a way that doesn't necessarily foster this kind of like giver-receiver dynamic but there's a lot that don't. And I was pretty uncomfortable with like, I'm going to come in and I'm going to go get money from women in America. And I'm just going to give you money. And then you're going to thank me for it. And then you're going to go on. Um, and I was just like, I don't, I'm not into, I don't want to do that. I want to create something that's like, we're doing this. It's like sink or swim. Like I want to be in it, you know? And um, because that's the thing about charity sometimes is that there isn't, um, a lot of times you're not bought in mm-hmm. There's nothing at stake for you. Right. And I think some people like that, right. That it's like, no, I can just give, and I don't have to really worry about the income or the impact. And I'm like, no, let's be in it together. And it's like, if this works, like we're, we're taking equal kind of risk. We're building together. If it works for me, it works for you. If it doesn't work for you, I'm also out. You know, there's like a buy-in that was really interesting to me about creating something together. And so I was like, let's build a business and it's going to create economic opportunity and it's going to give these women, you know, the ability to earn an income, but then also to just build within, Mm -hmm. alongside, you know, other really ambitious, talented, like-minded women. And so that's when I started a chicken farm. That didn't go very well. Because there's a market
1: for chickens or eggs or, I mean, you're just- Don't ask
2: me about, don't ask (laughs) me about my strategic plan, Jim. I don't know. I was like, chickens seem to be a big deal here. They're everywhere.
1: (laughs) I see them on the streets. I've been to Kampala, so I know how that goes. Yeah,
2: I'm like, let's do chicken farm. That sounds great. Problem being like, ew, I don't like chickens. And I don't want to run a chicken farm, you know, and it's really hard. You got to do chicken farming at scale. To be able to make the kind of impact that we wanted to. I was like, oh my gosh, we are talking about a lot a lot of chickens. (laughs) Um, And I was not interested in it. And that's kind of the point in the story where I'm like, I started with the problem, right? Um, Not with the solution. And I think we need to be open to what solutions could intrigue us or bring us to life. Because it was like, I was a journalism major and now I run a fashion company. I hated fashion. Now I'm really into it that only happened because i did it um, so kind of being open to being surprised by what brings us to life but also you do you have to have some sort of like something has to be igniting in you i think in order to like give your life to something and i decidedly knew chickens, that chickens, chickens were not, were not it. the future chickens were not my future i could do and, that in, you
1: know. and that's kind of a fail i mean in your in your narrative oh, that yeah. the whole chicken farm experiment was like oh my goodness it was a dead end was The wrong move does not have uh, the legs to walk very far, but it, it leads yeah. you to a win, which brings us ultimately to Seiko, which is your fashion house, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, yeah. so amazing. So, I'll
2: point out not, not to toot my own horn and brag, but let me be very clear that the chicken farm was the second failure. So it was two in a row, right? Because I had done the charity and, and kind of uh, went down that uh, route. And I was like, okay, this isn't where this isn't right. This isn't the right solution. So I had to fold that. Then I did the chicken farm and the chicken farm failed. So only say that to say that like there's a big part of the story where it was like, try something, fail, doesn't fit, doesn't work. What am I doing? Do it again. Doesn't fit, doesn't work, isn't answering the questions. So it was really the third round. So I do I, I just, you know, want to make that clear because I think folks who are in the middle of it right now. If you're in your first one, you might actually have a second one. You might even have a third one. So don't stop. <laughs> don't don't, well, I <laughs> don't mean, stop. But I, I think
1: that's part of the pluck, oh, ahead, isn't Jim. it? Well, the the idea is you cannot be stopped because it doesn't work or because the the solution isn't the right one in the moment. Don't surrender mm-hmm. the opportunity to find the right one. And that yes, that causes you lead you, you are moved, you are prompted, you are somehow just with the grit uh, developing a new business, which again, in a line, fashion, which you said you did not like, but fashion becomes Mm -hmm. the driver that is actually Mm -hmm. solving for the problem that you discovered. So tell me about Seiko. Mm -hmm. All right, this is a brand which is committed Mm -hmm. to fair trade. And the elevation mm-hmm. of women in a mm-hmm. part of the world where that's not uh, always the norm, and you're mm-hmm. making education possible, opportunity possible. Uh, I say you and your team at Seiko, tell us about Seiko. How does it work? What is it? Uh, now, my daughter-in-law, yeah. wife of Nathaniel, who's reading your book, she knows all about Seiko because she's she's got some <laughs> she's got some fa- fashion eye going. So <laughs> now, you tell our audience what Seiko is.
2: I love that. So it started with three young women and a pair of strappy sandals that have a leather base and these interchangeable straps that you can tie in style in a bunch of different ways. I designed the sandals, spent several months traveling around East Africa looking for the raw materials to make the sandals, prototyped them out, and then hired these three young women, Mary Mercy and Rebecca. And said, all right, ladies, if you promise to make these sandals for the next nine months, because there's nine months between high school and university, I promise that you will go to college next fall. And they were like, okay. And I was like, Okay. Now I have to go home and start slinging some sandals out of the back of my car. And yes, to your point, here's the thing I never, ever, ever would have said I was interested in fashion when I was in college, like, wore the same pair of awful, like, I was kind of like anti establishment. Mm -hmm. So, fashion to me was like, you know, the man. And it was just like, I'm pushing against consumerism. I'm pushing against, and I'm just going to like look not great. Well, look like you don't really care. No, my crunchy. Look like I don't care. My like crunchy, you know, whatever journalism self. And, but then the, this wild thing happened. So I was like, sandals, sure. I don't really, I'm not passionate about sandals, but like if, if this could be the means to the end, if this could work better than a charity and better than chickens, like great. And then what ended up happening is once, it wasn't until I started doing it traveling the country, you know, on the back of a motorcycle, going to, you know, meeting with raw material suppliers and being in the back room and watching something go, you know, from a sheet, a cowhide of leather and then cutting it and then, you know, stitching it to this. Like I actually was so, uh, I came to life, like of like seeing something that was just in your head manifest into a physical object that then you could hold and then somebody else could wear. I was like it was magical to me. I would stay up every like, you know, until three o'clock in the morning, just like cutting and pasting and stapling stuff together and trying to like prototype stuff out. And I I loved it. I loved it. It was like mm-hmm. I couldn't stop doing it. I couldn't go to bed because I was so enraptured by it. And I love to share that because I think had I said, had I tried to determine without just going out and doing some stuff, what was going to bring me to life, I absolutely 100% would have crossed fashion off of the list. I was like, I'm not interested in clothes. I'm not particularly fashionable. I actually, if I would have said this in college, I've become a little bit more grace-filled in my old age, you know, would have been like, it's, it's shallow, it's material, materialistic. It's, you know, it's vapid. I have no interest in that whole industry. So it was only in the process of just experimenting and doing something that I was like, oh my gosh, this is very fun. This is very fun. And over the last you know, decade, my passion for fashion has grown immensely. I love it now. I love engaging with fashion. I love designing. I love developing. I love prototyping. I, I love it all. Um, and But I'm just so grateful that I didn't you know, sit, I think we're just like taught to like, well, go think about your passion. Like, what do you sit down and you have just like a list of things and you're like listing out, this is what I'm interested in. My point being, I never, ever, ever would have figured this out without just experimenting and going like, just do the thing. It doesn't have to be your passion. Um, And just pay attention, like pay attention to what it does to you. Like when I was thinking about running a chicken farm and like putting the pieces together, I'm like my body and my mind, I am not not feeling creativity, not feeling excited. Don't want to stay up until 3 a.m. doing this. Okay, listen to that. But then all of a sudden with making sandals, I was like, oh, this is fun. Like, I'm into this. Lost i lost track to see of the time. Yes, I lost track of time. Absolutely. So just want to pay attention to that. So that being said, we started with a line of sandals. We are now a full women's lifestyle fashion brand. So we sell apparel, beautiful handbags, leather goods, footwear, jewelry, home goods, we still our home is in Uganda. Our production and manufacturing home, uh, where we have a beautiful factory where about half of our catalog is produced. And then we've had the incredible joy and honor of really traveling the world and looking for other artisan groups who operate with the with the same standards of integrity and respect and care and dignity for the maker that we do. Um, and we partner with these fair trade organizations. Well, so we'll go in and we'll collaborate. We'll design products and then we buy those products for them, and then we sell those products here in the United States. And we sell them actually through a network of entrepreneurs. So of social uh, social entrepreneurs that we call the Seiko Fellows. So instead of selling through stores, which we did for about the first five years of, of being a brand, you know, we went to trade shows, stores would buy our products, they would sit on the store shelves, the customers would come in, they would buy them or not. And we just really started dreaming about like, hey, we're so passionate about community and opportunity for women in the supply chain But is there an opportunity to create opportunity and community for women here in the United States? Because it felt one-sided, frankly. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like, we're so passionate about our work globally. And then my work here in the United States, frankly, kind of felt like, like I go to trade shows in Vegas, which is like, I hate with a passion and like, you know, go like try to sell stuff to buyers. It's fine. But like, didn't light my, my heart on fire. And so now... our our kind of hypothesis was like, well, what if if going and trying to get store owners to buy our products instead, what if we invited quote unquote regular women to be a part of the Seiko story uh, who weren't fashionistas necessarily, who didn't own their own retail stores. It was like, what if we put our product and our brand and our story into her hands? And we're talking about stay-at-home moms. Mm -hmm. We've got teachers, doctors, lawyers, professors, professors women from all different walks of life and like what would happen? And I'll tell you what happened is that quote unquote regular everyday women can actually make way more of an impact <laughs> um we found than any of these proper channels that we were you know chasing and so today the product is is sold we've got thousands of women across the country who sell the product so they share the Seiko story with their friends they style their friends they can earn an income on any they earn a commission on any of their sales and then women who are really entrepreneurial and, and business builders are actually they're building their own kind of mini sales organizations and teams. Um, and now it feels like, oh, this is what we were created to do because it's community and opportunity full circle for women here in the United States, for women across the globe. And then what we get to do is we get to connect those two groups of people. And that's the greatest joy of my career is, well, is getting to take you know a group of 15 women from the United States who have been selling this product to Uganda to meet the women who have been making it And this moment where they both meet each other and go, oh my gosh, because you're showing up in your community, sharing this story and selling this product. Like I got to go to university. All my daughters are in school. I'm, you know, my kids have access to the best health insurance in the country, but then also hearing our Ugandan team, um, react to our U S team saying, Hey, because you show up and you make this beautiful product. Like I found a community of women And I have friendships and relationships that I've never had before. I have a deep sense of purpose and meaning in my days. I've been able to get my family out of debt. My kid um, is in horse therapy. And that was something that was out of reach for us before I found this opportunity. And you watch these two women. I've told this story 10,000 times and I could (laughs) cry right now, right? You watch these women from millions of miles away say, because you're showing up and being faithful to what you're called to, my life has benefited so much. Um, And then that's just followed up with, and because you're doing, you know, this brave Mm -hmm, thing mm -hmm. on your side, like, look how my life has been benefited. And that's, that's the magic.
1: It's a win-win. There's no zero sum here. Everybody's in the system is, is receiving a a whole life benefit, not just a financial one. But I want to clarify your product line. All of these things are actually manufactured. They're created. They're sourced abroad. In parts yes. of the world where opportunity is way more limited than in the developed world, let's say, and you're mm-hmm. distributing it in the developed world using these networks of mm-hmm. relationships. It's targeting mm-hmm. women at all mm-hmm. ends of the of the continuum uh, to give them opportunity and a sense of self-definition and self- trajectory. And yeah. You know, the, Seiko has raised some eyebrows and it's, I mean, it's got some attention. I mean, you and your husband work this, this project together now, is that right? And mm-hmm. uh, let's come back yeah. to your husband later. I'm, I'm sure he's not yeah. just a bit yeah. player, but uh, I left you in oh, Uganda no. as a college student getting this going, but it led to, you went to Shark Tank. I mean, you're on the TV yeah. series, right? How did that go down? Tell me about that. <laughs>
2: Oh my gosh. What a trip. Yeah. So we were on Shark Tank. Gosh, that would have been back in like, I think we were maybe four years old as a company at that point. I'm not sure, but we went on to, you know, pitch our company. We got rejected on national television, which, you know, it's one thing to get rejected. It's another thing when 6 million people are watching you. Um, I mean, it's a trip,
1: you know, watching those kinds of shows and I, you just described it. You you have a sense of like, well, we didn't win, but to not win to, and maybe it's not just winning. I'm rejected. I'm laid to the side mm-hmm. on TV. Mm-hmm. Is that really an emotional, a mm-hmm. uh, minute for you, or you're just kind of like, oh, this so, is know, a part of it?
2: It's a good question. Yeah, the the blow to my ego actually didn't come. We went on the show. We were raising capital. It was our first round of capital that we were raising, so we were legitimately looking for investors. I didn't know if a shark... I feel like I went into it actually pretty clear-eyed about like, I'm not actually even sure this would be the right fit. Not to get too technical, but anybody who's an entrepreneur that might be listening to this, I'll try to keep it short, but I find it to be interesting. So we already had our valuation as a company. So that means you go out and you basically validate, here's what our company is worth. And you have a price for your company. And then you go out and you're selling shares based off of that price. Mm -hmm. Well, we had already started our financing round. So we had about half of our round already committed with like real life non Shark Tank investors. So we had a valuation. And once you have a valuation, you can't change your valuation mid round because your investor, you know, if we were to slash our valuation in half, the people who gave us money, you know, based on one price would not be happy about that. It would be unethical and unfair. And so we knew going in, the whole premise of Shark Tank is you negotiate your valuations. By the way, the valuations that entrepreneurs get on Shark Tank are crap. <laughs> like they're so bad compared to how we value companies not in mm-hmm. Hollywood, you know. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of knew it was like we're not going to change our valuation, and they're not going to bite with this valuation. So I I went in pretty clear-eyed right, of like we're probably not going to get an investment, but that's fine. We're going to get our story in front of six mm-hmm. million people, right, right, right. and that feels right. like a huge win, and it will be bonus. Icing on the cake if you know, some you know, one of the sharks thinks it's amazing and they're willing to bite without negotiating. So getting rejected actually wasn't hard on my ego. It was kind of like kind of saw that coming. What was hard on my ego was how people, other people, reacted to our rejection. Because here I'm going, I got us on Shark Tank. I got a six million eyeballs on our brand and our story. This is one of the biggest wins of my career, as far as it goes to, you know, Mm -hmm. one of my jobs being getting the brand out there. So I was just stoked. And what really was a bummer to my ego is how many people reached out to me after they saw the episode and were just like, oh man, that was so brutal. I'm so sorry. And so that was where I was kind of like, don't be sorry for (laughs) me. Like this, I see this as a great achievement. So it was a real delta between other people's perception of the experience and my perception of the experience. And, And that did actually lead me to have to do some self work of like other people's opinions, you know, that's and right, like right. I felt in myself in the beginning of that experience, the need to explain myself. Like, don't feel sorry for me. This was a huge win. <laughs> we did so much revenue that night. We got our, you know, it was free PR, right. blah, 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 blah. And through, you know, through those days that followed of releasing of that, of being like, you don't have to explain yourself. It, you can just, if it that's worked. their opinion. I know it
1: worked and it's good.
2: Yeah. yeah. And I think as entrepreneurs, not just entrepreneurs, as people in the world, there will be things that look big and fancy and awesome. And I've been on the other side of this too. Other things where things happen and people are like, oh my gosh, that's so amazing. But I know the backstory and I'm like, yeah, it looks really, really cool. And it is, but in the grand scheme of things. This isn't actually that big of a deal, but it looks really cool. People love to talk about it. And then I've been on the side of like, ooh, this looks brutal or this looks not good. And I'm going like, no, this was really good. And just learning to be okay with the dissonance between what you know in your heart to be good or valuable or something that you're excited about. And when there's a mismatch between how people perceive that, um, there's a letting go, a natural process where you have to say, I can't control other people's opinions. And it's actually really none of my business what they think about this thing that I did or didn't do. Um, and I say that as if I've arrived. Let me be very clear. That <laughs> well, is continual that, work that I've done. That's I will a lifetime. That's and, a
1: lifetime. Yeah.
2: Yes. For the rest of my life is con- constantly checking and saying other people's opinions or other people's perception of this achievement or this failure. It just don't really matter that much. So take well, it with a grain of salt. Thank and- you. Bless it and move along.
1: And what you know uh, and what we can demonstrate factually is that your, your project, Seiko, actually does translate into solving the problem you landed to discover in Uganda, which is women find meaningful work that provides a platform for them to be educated and to launch their lives. So you started with three young women with a promise, mm-hmm. in the nine-month mm-hmm. period between your graduation from high school and what you would normally enter if you had the means to university, if you work with mm-hmm. this, you'll find a way. Did those three uh, find their way into university?
2: They did. They yeah. did. They went to university. All three of them graduated from university. Now they're, you know, ten years out, and each building really beautiful lives um, in Uganda in their in their various spheres of influence.
1: And that and that was the beginning. Because today, mm-hmm. this is still ongoing. The business yes. grows. People are drawn to the fashion. They appreciate the quality, the ingenuity, the, the genius, really, of some of the design. But the consequence in Uganda is that women are following in the footsteps of those three, right? So I, I read that like for every $100,000 in Seiko sales, what, one mm-hmm. or two women go to school? We are
2: generating one full university scholarship. So one woman is going to university and we've created in in this statistic really, as we err on the side of being very conservative, a minimum of two full-time fair wage dignified jobs for artisans across the globe.
1: So those are three people. Uh, whose lives yes. are are changed. Yeah. Uh, their yeah. whole trajectory of life has changed consequent to the purchase of these products. And so how many mm-hmm. women so far through through that program or through that line would you say have benefited from Seiko?
2: Oh gosh. Well, the artisans now were in the thousands and thousands of because folks who've had access to fair wage jobs.
1: Largest manufacturer in Uganda? Pardon? Is that true?
2: Yeah non agricultural yeah so largest exporter in Uganda at is, this is point psycho. um we've have- Beautiful factory. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's such a magical place. You've never seen a factory with landscaping like ours. Let me just tell you this. Beautiful palms and banana leaves. And our general director did an amazing job. It's, it's a beautiful, magical place on the planet. Um, and so, like I said, we've got our factory in Uganda and then we have partners all over the world now. So we work with um, groups in India. We have a partner in Ethiopia, Kenya, Peru, Mexico, um, East Asia, So really, we truly are kind of a global community at this point. So we've had, we've created jobs for thousands of artisans. And then we've had um, over 200 women who have gone through our work study program, who have gone on to university and pursued their degrees, many of which have graduated about 98% of women who go through our program and then go on to university, by the way, already putting them in like five, top 5% of women, um have graduated from university or are still in school. But but the point being that once that gap is bridged, these women are doing it. They're oh. highly motivated. They're making it work. They're staying in school and they're graduating.
1: It's extraordinary. Really, it is. I mean, uh, who could not... Put their arms around something like this. It's so astonishing, and as you mm-hmm. said, it's it's yeah. not just about that. This is not just a handout. This is a a partnership with brilliant mm-hmm. people who have promise and potential, and this opens up doors for them. In the mm-hmm. same way that on the other side, in the retail side, you're doing that with women who, uh, again, as you described, may have professions uh, outside of their homes, or they may be working mm-hmm. at home. But uh, it's mm-hmm. a terrific, terrific story, and it does have to do with pluck. I mean, it's a word you use as the title of your book. And you, and I think we all understand that, oh, you know, why didn't I get that break? Why is uh, this person uh, ahead of me? I, I, I have some people in my world. They're not in my world, actually, up close. They're just celebrity types who have mm-hmm. the same birth year and the same birth month as I do. And they're just like way, way more out there with money and fame and success. And sometimes I've been tempted to think, what's the difference? You know, we all go through that. And you describe in your book, I think, in just a really beautifully captured way, it's not about luck. You know, I think, well, they just, they they have good fortune. They are fortunate, Mm -hmm. which is kind of a blind chance. Or somebody might say, well, God has favored them over me. And your argument Mm is, no, no, it's not about that at all. It's not about luck it's about pluck and I love what you said in your book that pluck is a word that unless your grandmother who was you know growing up in 1908 <laughs> informed your vocabulary you you don't you know pluck is something that we just don't say and if we do say it it's about that awkward ear hair <laughs> but really pluck has a different meaning I mean pluck means I've got some grit I've got some courage
2: and determined courage is the definition of plug. I think it's one of the greatest words in the English language. I'm on a mission to repopularize it. (laughs) And one of the great joys of my life now. So I took a screenshot of the usage because, you know, on Google, you can see like usage of a word. So before I launched my book, (laughs) I took a screenshot of the usage of pluck and, uh, and in several, I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it a few more years. I'm going to check in and see if there's been any uptick, but one of the great joys of my life now is that because it is a more rare word, I would say, I don't know, once every few weeks, at least I'm getting a random text message or Facebook message or DM from somebody who's reading a book or an article and they see the word pluck. And so it's very exciting. Um, but, but the point is, yes, it is, um, you know, there's kind of two things about pluck versus luck that I was rebelling against. One kind of comes down to this notion of beginner's luck. Uh is a is a phrase that we have in our mm-hmm. English mm-hmm. vocabulary and it means this phenomenon of when a beginner is successful we call it beginner's luck. And it's quite disparaging, right? Because it's kind of like, "Oh, it's a way of um it's a way of diminishing someone's success. Oh, it was just beginner's luck." We've all heard it. What's fascinating to me is that as I look at my story and then of course the stories of of so many people who've built these beautiful lives of purpose and passion and impact, I started thinking, is it beginner's luck or is it actually, is it really a phenomenon? Or are there things that beginners actually do more naturally and their success isn't actually despite their beginner status, but it's actually in part because. Of it. And that's the whole premise of the book is that actually beginners will do things more naturally. And as we become uh, more competent, as we reach this status of kind of like experts and excellence in our field, actually something happens to us. It's called the hypothesis of earned dogmatism. And as we start to associate ourselves more as experts, we actually decrease our curiosity, our creativity, Mm -hmm. our. Innovation, which of course, ulta is our effectiveness, and so in some way, you know, billions and billions of books are teaching you how to be an expert. My little plucky book is the one that's going to say, "I'm going to teach you how to go back to the beginning," because I deeply believe that to be a creative, innovative um, leader, that you actually have to be just as intentional about channeling your inner beginner as you are about pursuing mastery and expertise. And so, the whole book rests on that premise of here's 14 things that I have found that beginners do more naturally. Um, So if you're a beginner, what's fun about it is that it's like, this is your secret weapon. You're already doing it. You just have to be intentional about knowing, hey, I'm going to show up and this is my advantage as a beginner. If you are further along in your career vocation, you know, whether that's as you know, in the workplace or just as a human, um, the further along we get, the more we have to say, I have to exercise this and get back to this place, but either way it requires intentionality. And so that was, that's kind of the first thing around beginners pluck. The second really came from my, my community here in the U S primarily of women. And I think that this is, this is social studies show that women are much more likely to attribute their success to external factors. Uh, which luck can be one of them. Whereas men are much more likely to attribute their success to internal factors. Okay, mm. so a woman is successful, and I saw this in my community here in the US of women who were building their own businesses with Seiko. I would see a woman just crushing it. She is crushing it. She is leading, she is inspiring, she is committed, she's organized. She's making a she's making an income. She's building a team. She's being seen as a leader in our community. And so I would like invite her on to, you know, like a podcast or a Facebook live, and I'd say, hey, share, share with our community what you're doing. And Jim, it was wild how consistently a woman would get on and she would go, she would start off with like, well, I just, you know, I think I got really lucky this month and I would just go, the heck you didn't get lucky. I saw what you were doing and it was strategy and it was hard work and it was commitment and it was putting, doing what you said you were going to do, which a vast majority of people in the world just don't. They say, I'm going to do this thing. Then they just don't do this thing. And then they're disappointed when they don't see results. And I'm like, you did all of that. That isn't luck. That is pluck. And I want to create specifically a culture of women. We talk about this idea of our our sake community. We show up and we toot horns. We toot our own horns. We toot our sister's horns. But I am done with living in a culture that says to be liked and loved, specifically as a woman, you need to play it small and you need to be humble and you need to always be deflecting. And yet we live in a world that to be liked and to be respected as a man, it's like, you know, the bigger, the better, and I'm successful. And let me show you all my achievements. And, and, and Jim, the social the social science behind that is so real. It is so real that we like men for their achievements and for their boldness and for their ambition. That makes us like men more. And we dislike women for that those exact same characteristics. There's a really fascinating study that really just, it handed two people two people, identical resumes um, of achievements. And on the top of the resume, there was a a very obviously male name on one resume. And on the top of the other resume, there was a very obvious female name. Had them read their resume, all their accomplishments, the amazing things they've done in the world. And then they just asked some simple questions about likability. How much would you like this guy? How much do you want to go get a beer with him? How much do you want him to be in your friend group? And the really successful, ambitious men, everybody wants to be their friend. Everybody wants to sit next to them at the party. Everybody wants them to be in the friend circle. The really ambitious women, people are like, well, it's cool what she's done. She's probably not very fun to be around. She's probably pretty intense. She's probably kind of selfish. She's probably, I mean, ambitious. And so that that dichotomy um, is something that I am trying to change in the world. And I want to tell you this, Jim, I'm not just trying to change it for women. My goal is not just that it changes for women and that women have the freedom to show up and say, I did a thing, I tried really hard and I failed six times and then I kept doing it and have a whole community that's like, go you, you're awesome doing a thing. I also deeply believe that the impact that this uh, double standard has on men is so toxic and is so harming. And I see my brothers be so damaged by this narrative that says, hey, to be liked and to be loved, you have to be successful. And you have to be ambitious. It's just as toxic and damaging to men as it is to women. And this is a part of the conversation that I am so passionate about because it's so it's the untold story of gender equality is that um, it's so focused on women and what women are missing out and how the patriarchy is damaging women. Very true. I've spent my life trying to reverse some of those impacts and effects. What I am also equally as passionate about It's like, that narrative is not working for our men either. Like the amount of, I can tell you, I can count on two hands, men that I know personally or through, you know, uh, one of my really good friends, husbands or fathers, right? Two hands have been driven to alcoholism, to addiction, have committed suicide, have ended up in remarkably unhealthy places, directly related to their sense of worthlessness because they weren't successful enough mm-hmm. or they didn't achieve enough. So much shame. So, I mean, the story of, you know, like the, the dad losing his job, going to work. I have air quotes every day yeah. because he's so deeply ashamed to tell his family, I lost my job. You know, I have a, I have a, a, a friend whose who's, uh, father had killed himself and he had lost, he, he didn't, he was unemployed for six months and no one knew. because he was so ashamed and felt so alone. And I'm so like, it's not working for anybody. (laughs) It's not working for women to say, you have to play it small to be liked and to be loved. And don't you dare be ambitious. And don't you dare show that you have something that you deeply care about, that you want to bring about in the world. And it's not working for men to say that your worth and value to us lies in how much money you make, how successful you are and what you look like in the world. And I deeply believe that we can co-create something, a narrative that works and that lifts up all of us together.
1: You know, one thing that strikes me about you is just listening I mean, just seeing your face and experiencing your passion, as well as reading your book and knowing some of your story. You are a, an extraordinary mix of two uh, concepts or, or values that seem at, on the surface to be counterintuitive, but they're actually they're partners. One is, you have a lot of confidence. And uh, that confidence, though, is born out of humility. So mm. you know the whole concept of of going back to the beginning the certain sense of I need to learn I don't have all the answers I I, I haven't figured it all out I mean that's the beginner's charm and that's mm-hmm. what you're appealing for don't ever get to the place any of us should not be at that place where we think I got this down I <laughs> I wrote the book already it's over buy my book <laughs> Now, let me say, buy Liz's book, but I'm just saying <laughs> it's because her book will bring you to a place where you think about that. Be a beginner always, and your, your thirst, your hunger for that adventure of learning and, and, and risk-taking, because that's the only way you actually learn. But, but matched with a certain sense of confidence, because I know mm. that if I take the dare, I'm going to be okay. And life is worth mm. living. When I confidently stand up and say, I was made in the image of God. I mean, you you reference that at the front end of our conversation, this this concept of 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 kind of divine imaging, the the purpose. Uh I, I'm not here by chance. This isn't just random. I may not understand all the implications of that, but there is something bigger than me at play. Liz, tell me about your your faith, your experience uh, on that side, this whole journey. How how is that in has your faith informed what you've done, and how has it changed or affirmed or framed what you've yeah.
2: done? Yeah. Oh, well, speaking of being a beginner, I think the older I get, the more and more, um, even in the realm of faith, right? The, I think I'm learning to embrace a lot of the mystery of the divine and knowing, like, This whole concept that it's like, if I can totally figure out God probably ceases to be something that I should be worshiping, right? Because that means it's small enough to fit within my brain, which is so limited. I think that that's one of the things that, and not in a disparaging way, I don't think I'm dumb. I don't think I'm stupid. But my brain is very small and it's remarkably formed by my experiences. It's like, I grew up in this place. I was born to these two people. I went to this school. I was surrounded by people who had these thoughts. And my brain, in the way that I think about the world, has been so influenced by that. And I do think this is where my global family has been the greatest gift to me is because you show up and you recognize your first experience outside of your own culture shows you how much that you've taken for fact. And you've taken for universal fact is like, oh, not everybody had that experience. Oh, that was very formed by my subculture, right? So I say all of that to say I've become more enamored with a lot of divine mystery and more comfortable with that. That being said, there's a couple things that I believe very deeply that have informed my journey and that have only strengthened throughout my journey. The first would be what you just alluded to is kind of, the Imago Day, the belief in the Imago Day, right? Which means that we are all created in the image and the likeness of our divine creator. And that belief, if we actually truly believe it, that could, that's that changes everything. <laughs> it literally changes everything. Because if we can actually believe it, it changes what we believe about ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and it changes deeply what we believe about other people, even people that we disagree with, even people that are our enemies. And you know, it's funny when we heard when we hear the word enemy, it's so interesting because I think I think, oh, that was like biblical times, you know, like the the my, you know, the Philistines were my enemies. We don't really have enemies anymore. And it's like, oh, do we? Oh, do we have some enemies? You know, like politically we have enemies. We have enemies based off of our ideology, even here in America, like just deep, deep senses of divide and othering that is happening. And so when I believe that I am made in the image of God, that people in my camp are made in the image of God, but Ooh, then when I look across to those people that I am just like, I don't get it. How did you get there? And I say, Oh, but you're so blessed and you're made in the image of God. And I so disagree with what you're saying and doing. And I, and I, and I can say that and I can articulate the damage of you know the language that you're using or the ideology that you're espousing. We can talk about the impact that you're having in the world and we can disagree on that, but like at the end of the day, that you are made in the image and the likeness of the divine, and that my work is to continue to believe that and to seek that and to find that in you that changes everything. And my business is rested. You know, we're not, and I'm very um, open with saying like, people are like, are you a Christian company? And I'm like, I don't really know what that means. So I guess the answer is no in the sense that it's like, you don't have to be a Christian to work for Seiko. You, I don't want, I just, and I'm not, I am not saying the people that that's their calling that that's wrong or bad. I just have no interest in creating like a small, like we all believe in the same thing and you know, we use the same language and we came from the same subculture and we're building this thing. I'm like, no, 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 let's, let's have a really long table. And let's like, we, we only have to have a few things in common. And for us at Seiko, one of the things that we have in common, and I wouldn't use this language of Imago Day cause that's like very Christianese and you don't know that unless that's, you know, your subculture, but it is in some ways, like, do you deeply believe that every single human deserves to be treated with respect and dignity uh, whether or not that rests on the belief that they're made in the image of the divine. But the but the manifestation of that is that they deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. And that's our whole company. It's like everybody through the whole supply chain, dignity and respect. We're a part of a story when we buy our clothes, whether we recognize it or not, what story What story is your closet writing? You know, and I say this specifically to Christians. I made a joke about this to another co-worker uh, yesterday that like, ooh, the Christian... The holy thrift in the Christian community is real. And I, I grew up in that. Okay, Midwest thriftiness is a virtue. And how that has translated is into such sad, damaging, toxic behavior that chips away at the Imago Day. right? So I'm somehow holy because I found this store where I can buy a t-shirt for $5. And that makes me feel good because I'm a good Christian who's not spending money on fashion. And I'm like, oh, Bless do you know what, do you know what had to happen to our precious planet to get you that t-shirt for $5? Do you know how that worker was likely treated who sewed the threads that's keeping the sleeve on the body of that t-shirt that you're wearing? Like none of that is in alignment with what God has for his people. And you were a part, the moment you buy that product, you are now a part of that story. That is your story that you are now co-creating. And as consumers, Every dollar that we spend is a vote for how we're saying, this is how we want the world to work. And specifically the Christian holiness of thrift, right? We've taken this concept of don't spend money um, because somehow that's bad or that makes me materialistic. And in the process, we are literally standing on the backs of the people mm-hmm. who are making our product and saying, it's it's a better value for me to get a $5 t-shirt. Uh, you work in a place where you work 18 hours a day and you don't get um, breaks and you're literally 85% of people in the global supply chain gym do not earn a living wage. You open up your closet, 85% of the hands that touch those clothes were oppressed and abused to get you those clothes as cheap and as fast as possible. And, And we're not even talking about the implications that it had on our planet, right? And so it's not about being cheap. It's not about being thrifty. It's about saying like, as a Christian, how I am spending my money is a reflection of my beliefs. And if I believe in the Imago Day that everyone is created in the image and likeness of God, that's going to translate to every part of my life. And consumerism is a huge force in our life. And what if we said, I'm only, I'm going to be a part of beautiful stories and I'm going to spend, frankly, maybe a little bit more, and I'm going to have to rethink my purchasing and I may not get it as fast or, you know, whatever it is. But I'm a part of a beautiful story. And when I wake up in the morning and I get dressed and I put on this handbag, I like feel that. I can feel this connection to humanity. That was only the first part of my faith part. (laughs) So
1: so what's number two? What's the second piece? We may only have time for two, but...
0: (laughs) I have so many words. Um,
1: All that to say, number two. Oh,
2: Sorry, what'd you say?
1: I said, all that to say... Your your second,
2: <laughs> <laughs> my you know, second. I, 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 you know what? I
1: <laughs> let let me just stop here to say that, Liz. I don't mean to suggest that what you just shared was was in some way uh, elongated beyond necessity. What you just spoke made me see my own closet, mm-hmm. and and it it wow, it's stuff that we don't think about. Thank you for helping us to think about it. And mm-hmm. I understand that it's born, it's born out of your faith conviction in. Mm-hmm in the way in which humanity is that pinnacle of creation in God's image. Yeah. So thanks for sharing that. But now, is there a second platform that you stand on when you think about your I faith? Think,
2: yeah, the second kind of core, core faith belief that I have um, would probably, if I had to sum it up, would, would just come to the sentence maybe of like, that Jesus is in the margins and that Jesus is with and amongst the marginalized. Um, And that is something that I just always come back to. Like we go to the margins and we go and we're with people in the margins, not just out of an act of like, oh, I'm doing this because it's the good thing, but it's like, because that's where Jesus is. Um, And we just see that over and over and over again in scriptures. What I love most about Jesus is just this, like just the scanning, like who's in the room, who is in the room that is despised, that is forgotten that is marginalized, um, that has been told that they're not allowed to come in, that they don't have a seat at the table, that they're dirty, that they're broken, that they don't belong. And just the way that throughout scripture, it's just like the subversiveness of Jesus saying like, yeah, 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 The teachers and the rich and the powerful and the people Every, you know, I just like imagine Jesus being at a cocktail party and like, everybody's doing that, the jockeying, right. Of Like get to go talk to this person and get airtime over here. And Jesus just being like, Oh, but look over there. Oh, like that one over there the forgotten, the lost, the marginalized, the oppressed, the one that's been nobody in this room is looking at that person of like, I'm going to go hang out over here. So Mm -hmm. it's like, if I walk into a room and I want to go find Jesus, I just need to look for the most marginalized, the most forgotten. Uh, and I feel pretty confident that if I head in that direction, it'll be like, Oh, I'll bump into Jesus over there. And that's been my whole, um, that, that is that it's like, I've learned the most and have grown the most in my relationship with the Lord, um, through that, through, through folks that I feel like the world has kind of said, like, "Mm -hmm. you don't matter. And for me specifically, that's like, that is our, that is our supply chain, right? It's not just that. I think women globally, whether or not they're in the supply chain, uh, the level of forgottenness that women in extreme poverty are born into and, and die in of just complete ambiguity and disposableness and forgottenness. Once you see that, you can't unsee that. Yeah. Um, the
1: invisible. That's...
2: Pardon? The invisible.
1: Yeah. The people who are not seen are the ones that Jesus sees first. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it makes me think uh, as I so appreciate that also. I, I, I'm just reminded of a moment I had in India where um, I I was invited to serve some food to some uh, victims of leprosy, and mm-hmm. I, you know it was a it was a kind of a mission trip, and I you know I, I was trying to be Indiana Jones, and <laughs> in for the adventure. But I just remember in the moment as these uh, folks who were disenfranchised from their communities, uh, they mm-hmm. were uh, people were afraid of them because of the leprosy and so on. And here they were lined up, seated seated on the on the dirt, and I was scooping out some rice to them and so on. But I, there was just this minute where I thought this is Jesus. I don't know, it's mm-hmm. just what you're describing. The, the, the realization that so much of my pursuit of Jesus, with a hundred other avenues, because I was sincere in my pursuit of him, was most powerfully um, resolved when I was with the least of these, famously out of the scripture, the least of these you do it unto me. It was just like I was in the presence of Jesus in the most... Ex- extraordinary way and how often i've wanted to reclaim that minute Mm -hmm. because life takes us on and we forget but thank you for sharing it once more which makes me think so when when will seiko have that men's line of fashion (laughs) (laughs) how am i going to clean up my closet how am i going to do that where's your husband what's he doing about this
2: Okay. A couple things. We have a couple men's products, but not many. Uh, we do have a line of coffee, Jim. It's called Together Coffee. It's the best coffee in the world. Expertly, small batch roasted. So if you're a coffee drinker, that might suit your fancy. It's definitely not out of the realm of possibility that we would get into to men's. Um, we just have... We have a long way to go on the opportunity for the women's market.
1: Sure,
2: sure. So it's just it's just a matter of it's just a question of focus from the product perspective, but I will say very passionate about and I've I've alluded to this, I think in other ways, my my message um both about consumerism but also about gender equality, um I really want men to be at the table. Yeah. And it's, you know, I've gotten to a point now where, you know, I get asked to speak on all these panels and all this stuff, which is fine. And I get, you know, asked by women to speak on a panel about women. And I'm like, who's going to be in the audience? And I'm like, well, women. And I'm like, ah, give me 50% male audience. And then I'll come because here's the thing. At some point there are, there are always spaces, you know, and I'm, I'm for, for women to be together, but it's like, at some point we gotta, we gotta broaden the table. Because our brothers are co-creating society and policy and culture with us. And I'm a little bit over the preaching to the choir that it's like, I want to invite men into that conversation, not just to share my lived experience, but also to invite them um, to share theirs and to explore like, what are the ways in which this narrative that I'm actively fighting against most obviously for women is, is not working for you either. And so I I am very passionate about bringing men into the conversation.
1: Oh, I have no doubt. And I know that you are now getting ready to speak at the World's Fair in Dubai. <laughs> and let's just, let's put it on the table. Many people may not be aware that there is what was called Expo 2020. Uh, You know, Jim.
2: I didn't even know until I got invited like two weeks ago. There
1: you go. It was Expo 2020 for Dubai, but they had to postpone it a year because of the pandemic. And -hmm. they've taken a thousand acres of desert outside the city in the the UAE and created this wonderland of... The future and and technology and all that, and here you are. You're being invited to go to Dubai, which is this, uh, you know, East meets West uh, in the Gulf. And uh, what are you going? What have you been invited to do there? What's the, the project?
2: well, I just, now I know it's, it's all been very, very quick, but to my understanding, um, there is a women's pavilion and this is, you know, like each country kind of has their own like section and they're doing that specifically for kind of, instead of a country for, for, for womankind. And so um, I'm thrilled to experience it. They've built out, they've hired a, a really talented, famous architect to Build out this building. And there's a whole interactive exhibit that you're going to walk through um, that's kind of about uh, historical accomplishments, like how have women shaped and formed today uh, throughout history. And I think there's going to be some untold stories that I'm really excited about about learning and promoting what are the challenges women and girls are still facing. And then, what are solutions? What is the future? How, how are we going to close that gap? And so, it's a very artistic, immersive exhibit that's kind of walking through all of these things. My small role in it is there's some, um, you know, there's there's some events that are happening. Mm-hmm to promote that. So there's like a press conference. So I'll be leading the press conference. There's a panel, um, with some folks, everything from business, culture, art. And so just leading a conversation about meaningfully, what is, what are the challenges and opportunities that we have, uh, to promote global gender equality. And then there's some fun stuff. Like there'll be a big opening ceremony for the pavilion where all the artists are featured. Um, and I'll be emceeing that event. So it should be, it should be quite a trip.
1: Well, I'm telling you, I I cannot imagine anyone more charged up, pumped up, or buzzed than Liz Balhan, and to do that now, I'm, it's,
2: it's I, funny you say that because I was with my best friend. I meet with a group of women yeah. every single Wednesday night of my whole life, and we've been doing it for you know eight years now. So these are my my core ladies, and so I'm telling. They're like, "What is this trip?" Because it's all happened so fast, and I'm explaining it to them, and I'm like, "But I still don't know. Like, I haven't got my profiles on these people yet. I'm gonna have to prepare for the interview on the way over." And one of my good friends, she was like, "You are describing." my literal worst nightmare right now like you said yes to something you're flying across the world you're going to have to speak in front of a lot of people you're going to have to prepare somewhat you know be like on the fly doing research and preparing all of your your like content she literally she's like i hate snakes <laughs> And I would rather <laughs> lay in a pit of snakes than do this. And I'm like, oh, I think I'm like a little bit stressed, no, but I think no. it sounds like a blast. So no, isn't I, it funny how God created us so I'm, uniquely different? I'm,
1: I'm, I just, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm so old that uh, I was 10 years old at the Seattle World's Fair. It's the same game. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. so yeah. Uh, I remember going to it very plainly and it was a little tiny World's Fair, only 74 acres. You're going to the thousand acre spread. But at 10 years old at the Seattle World's Fair, I remember that at the Bell Telephone, nobody even remembers Bell Telephone, but at the exhibit, now AT&T, they they had a thing with picture phones. This is 1962. And they had picture phones, and you could go over in a corner, and you could dial up a phone, had a rotary dial, and then you could see a person in another part of the building, you know, your mother, and talk to them. And it seems so preposterous. It was like, that is just... Out there. And of course, today I hold in my hand a phone that can do that. The reason I'm telling you that story, though, uh, Liz, is because these kinds of events have Mm -hmm. a way of seeding thought and culture and life far beyond what we can imagine. It's not just a Disneyland trip it actually does influence the course of events. And so my sense is you've been called into this venue because you're going to be the picture phone of Expo Mm -hmm. 2021. In other words, the world you think about, the world you describe, the ambition for which you reach will be put on the table and there'll be somebody who's 10 years old there who's going to say, Mm -hmm. in my lifetime, I will see that. So thanks for going, and thanks for being with us, Liz. Thanks for
2: being my hide guide, Jim. I mean, I was excited about it, but now I'm very excited about it. I'm telling it. you,
1: uh, the Lord doesn't waste anything, and it's a great opportunity. We wish you a safe journey. And uh, let me just say again, Beginner's Plug, that is a book you should pick up. It is a great read. And if you're getting on a plane, I promise you, the time will fly by because it's so it's so engaging. I'm going to, even, I'm going to use a word you're going to like. It's tart. It is oh, a tart I do like ring. that. Yep, this is beginner's I do like pluck that. with a flavor. It's like a tart, and you will want to read up. And Liz, may the Lord bless you. And 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 now, I didn't. You know, I know that you're married. I know your husband. It's, it's his name Ben. Uh, yeah, Ben's in the mix and all that. So, oh yeah, I mean, very much. this is your your party, but uh, you tell Ben just he has to put on his clothes every day. Just tell him there's a bunch of guys out there waiting for the Seiko okay. men's line. Okay.
2: I will do that. I will, I will pass that along.
1: All right, Liz. Thanks so much. Be encouraged. Thank you. We here at All That To Say chose the phrase because after a long conversation, you, you can kind of say, well, All That To Say to sum it all up. Mm-hmm. Well, All That To Say, we are so proud to know Liz Bohannon. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jim. Godspeed.
0: For more information, visit allthattosay.org. Thank you for joining the conversation. Don't forget to like and subscribe.